Welcome to the Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz, coming to you from upstate New York. I'm a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and business school professor. And coming to you from Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, professor of international management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Thanks for joining us today. When Bela and I were on the faculty at Clarkson University, Bela and I would have lots of interesting conversations about how the world is changing and specifically about how innovation and entrepreneurship are changing. And we'd do this over coffee or lunch as time allowed. A bit over a year ago, I moved to Germany and then Bela retired, but Bela had the idea to continue these conversations in the form of a podcast, this podcast, and invite others to listen, listen in. And I honestly thought this was a horrible idea. Um, I don't consider myself a podcast guy, but Bella was relentless. And as usual, he was right. Uh, And we've had a great time so far. So join us each week as we talk with interesting people we've met uh, to share their stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness in work and in life. Well, Bela, tell us about this week's episode. Yeah, so this week... Uh, I had an interview or a conversation with uh, Brian Epstein. Uh, Brian is the founder of Deep Blue Communications, uh, which was acquired by Comcast in May of 2019. So it's a really interesting story of perseverance as Brian founded several companies along his long and winding path uh, to get to uh, Deep Blue Communications. Uh, this interview was actually recorded live at a monthly entrepreneurship event I co-host with Rick DeRico in Schenectady, New York. Uh, We have done several of these uh, in previous podcast episodes, so the sound quality is uh, slightly uh, below our normal uh, high standard, uh, and there's some background noise uh, because it's recorded in a big echoey room. Um, But uh, Rick and I interviewed Brian at this event, and uh, we decided to record it and to keep it and turn it into a podcast because I think it has some really, really good content. Agreed, Bela. I think this is a really interesting interview. Uh, But before we begin, let me take a second to remind our listeners that our podcast is brought to you in part by the law firm of Phillips Lytle, LLP. And this is a sponsorship that makes a lot of sense to us. Bela, you know this firm well, don't you? I sure have. I have worked with the key entrepreneurship practice partners at Phillips Lytle for over 20 years. Uh, They have a group of nationally recognized attorneys that take an entrepreneurial approach to legal matters, and they have a long, long history of success with startup businesses. Uh, Phillips Lytle is certainly my go-to team for guiding startup businesses down the path to success. Yeah, we are excited to have Phillips Lytle as our show sponsor And you and I both know that they think like entrepreneurs, taking a pragmatic approach to getting things done and spotting issues before they become problems. So if you need good, solid advice starting, funding, or selling a business, whether you're a single-person startup or working on a nine-figure exit, Bela and I confidently recommend the attorneys at Phillips Lytle. Bela, what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with them? So for more information, you should reach out to Rich Honan, uh, who runs the Albany office uh, here in upstate New York. And uh, there's two ways to do that. You can call him at 518-618-1225, or you can get a hold of Rich via the website at Phillips Lytle. Uh, It's phillipslytle.com, and let me spell that for you. It's P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-L-Y-T-L-E.com. And it'll be great for us if you let Rich know you heard about Phillips Lytle from listening to the Unconventional Path podcast. Okay, with that said, let's jump right, right into today's interview with Brian Epstein. 
All right, just for starters, so maybe there's some people in the room who don't know you and don't know Deep Blue Communications and some of the companies you started. So can you just kind of give us a little bit of an early like a intro on who you are, your background? I, will, uh, I won't go too far back. I promised my wife I wouldn't go all the way back to the beginning of time here. So um, I, I moved to uh, the Capital Region in 92. I'm actually a graduate of Union College Engineering and class of 88. Grew up in Long Island. Um, Vision Systems was my first business in the area, which was an IT consulting firm based, uh, which is now the Renaissance Hotel. So um, I was down in that area. Um, about 10 years later, um, I became active in a group of called YEO, and I see some of my friends are here from that. I appreciate that. Um, and YEO was uh, a great group to help entrepreneurs that had a business over a million dollars in sales. And so, um, really, ideas came out. I was mowing my lawn, as you remember from that story, and that's where that, we had some software in-house that we decided to spin off into a, a new company, which was called Autotask, and so we spun that off. And then, shortly after that, um, I think it was about 2002, 2003, I sold Vision Systems, I got bought out of Autotask, and I started up a Wi-Fi company. We had done the Wi-Fi at Albany Airport, and so we were charging a fee for people to use Wi-Fi, and so we, we wrote a portal software called Wi-Fi Fee. And in fact, we actually hired some RPI students. I don't know if any of the Gavant guys are here, but they were the ones who wrote our original software, did a great job. And so uh, Wi-Fi Fee was going for a while, and um, eventually we decided we wanted to go national, and the way we thought we could do that best was to focus on hospitality. And so uh, we acquired a small company on the West Coast called uh, Deep, Blue, Deep Blue Wireless. And so there was five guys there. I think we had about five people. So we had 10 people. Collectively, we were about a $1.8 million company. Right? And so that was in 2009. And then from 2009 to roughly 10 years, we grew from $2 million to $38 million was on the last uh, Inc.'s fastest growing companies. So. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Brian, could you just tell us what Deep Blue Communications does? Sure. So Deep Blue um, engineers, installs, and then supports Wi-Fi networks for um, hospitality is a big vertical. We also do a lot of retail um, and large venues. So if you ever use the Wi-Fi at Saratoga Racetrack, that's Deep Blue. We've done Monmouth Racetrack. If you've ever been to Legoland, uh, Cedar Point, those are some of our largest installs. Uh, Planet Fitness, we have about 1,000 Planet Fitnesses. Um, all the CarMax dealers, and then on the hospitality side, um, Wyndham, Hilton, Hyatt, uh, Marriott. Those are our four biggest brands that were certified all those. So a lot of the hotels, so like a shout out to BBL, for example, we do all their hotels, we install the Wi-Fi. And by installing it, then if you have a problem, you call an 800 line, it brings our help desk, which is based here. Um, the help desk is in Latham, and then the rest of the corporate offices is in Troy. So talk a little bit about, you, you, well, we talked, we talked the other day, and you mentioned um, you started the first company right out of college, right? So right out of college, I actually went down to New York City. I was working for Otis Elevator. So I graduated in 88. A lot of ups and downs in that business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was there, so I'm sorry. So, uh, yeah. But I, I set the bar really low, so. <laughs> but uh, ultimately, I was working in New York City, in sales, 35th to 42nd Street, and I realized um, I became the de facto IT person, which I didn't even know what that was at the time, but no one knew how to fix the printer, no one knew how to get things going, so I became that person, and I realized, hey, I kind of like IT, 
And so I decided to get certified in IT, and that's when I quit. So I got my Microsoft certified. So anyone knows what an MCSE is, right? So MCSE when it was NT350, if you can date myself. Right? So it was a long time ago when I did that. So I was, I think there was less than 100 MCSEs in the country at the time. I was in Albany, and then I started doing a lot of Microsoft networks, Lantastic networks, for those who remember that. Um, and then we hired some Novell people doing that. So that was our original vision. So you're systems. a young guy, and you said that when you <laughs> sold it, it, you had 25 employees. How, many, how much did you have in revenue? Uh, it was a little shy of $3 million. Okay, so how much would you say like you learned? And how much does that experience and some of the other pivots, even Autotask, and we talked a little bit about that, that helped shape kind of who you are now, your decision-making process? I, by the way, we have some SUNY Schenectady students and some SUNY Ithaca students here, and I think they all are interested in hearing, how do I avoid mistakes? So what lessons did you learn, <laughs> and how much did that shape who you are and your like, decision-making skills? So by the way, you won't avoid mistakes, just learn from your mistakes, right? So you know, I either, I either win or I learn, right? You don't really lose, hopefully. Don't make the same mistake twice. And so I made a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, and you know you learn that, right? So you get specific. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, so, so we uh, raised money originally when I had my Vision Systems company with friends and family. Um, you know, then I with Autotest. You know, they they went through the VC route. Uh, when I went into Deep Blue, I did uh, Tech Valley Angels Network at the time, and so I arranged some angels money. Then I did private equity, um, and then eventually I sold out. And and so I, I would say the number one piece of advice I try and get from people that regardless of which path you go down, if you take someone's money, whether it's a friend, whether it's a business or there, that you want to be clearly aligned to understand why are they investing in you? What is, what is the expectation? And if you don't have that conversation and you're not in alignment, um, there'll be disharmony on the board. And so um, I had a lot of disharmony uh, <laughs> on some boards as I was going through it, but it's, it's, it's truthfully, it's as much fault as, on its mind as it is, you know, the other side, because if, if you go into it and you're just like, well, invest it and someday we'll just make money, like your someday could be very different than the other guy that just wrote you a check, right? So it's really critical to understand that. And so I would say with, with each business, I got a little smarter about taking money to make sure there was alignment there. And so... Again, I look at vision systems. It was, you know, I had like literally friends and family and we had, you know, private people that we gave stock to. Um, when I, I went into um, Tech Valley Angels Network, it was angel investors that came in. And it was, um, we had a preference on money. And so for those who don't understand what a preference is, right? So if, if say, just do round numbers, right? If, you're, if your company is valuing at a million dollars and someone gives you a half a million dollars, and they have a preference on their money. Um, if you sell your business um, later for, you know, um, a, a million dollars in that, they get their money first, right? So um, a preference, you know, and obviously a lot of times those preferences might have interest accruing on them. So what will happen is you might find yourself 10, 15 years down the road where that money you took in <laughs> has now gotten a lot bigger, right? So that half a million dollars you took in is now accrued to say two to three million dollars. So the investor, the person that gave you money, they know if they can sell your business for three million, they get their money back with the investment back, but you don't get any of yours, right? And so you learn a lot about preferences sometimes the hard way. And so I, I, I did learn the hard way on that. So, you know, I would just, it's not to say preferences are bad, just understand the expectation and make sure you're paying them down. So it's like a credit card, right? If you don't pay it down, 
eventually becomes a lot of debt that you will owe, right? And so um, when I went into my private equity company, you know, because I had a bad taste from preferences, I literally said to them, like, I'm not doing any preference. Like, if there's a preference, we're not in. And, and truthfully, a lot of private equity firms are like, well, we have to have a preference. That's in our mandate. And so that limited a lot of private equity firms that came in. Um, GPB, when they came in, were, was good with that. In fact, when I met GPB, which was a private equity firm based out of New York, um, we were getting approached by a lot of private equity firms. And so, you know, you kind of do the dance and you understand where they're at. And so in private equity, there's people that want to just invest money, grow it for, say, five, six years, and then cash out at a high multiple. Those are the one, not the ones I wanted to do because it's kind of that same preference amount. So GPB was really much more so we want to put the money in. We want to get actually a very solid distribution as we're doing that. But as long as you're growing a little bit, that's, that's cool with us. So, um, so that's why we went with GPB. They kind of checked all the boxes, at least for us, what we were trying to do. And I think it also worked out really well in the sense that when you have a private equity firm like that and they're all about profitability, well, guess what? Your numbers get more profitable, right? You start generating a lot more profits. And then if a buyer comes in, typically a buyer is going to look at a multiple of profits or a multiple of EBITDA or things like that, right? So uh, for those who don't know, earnings before interest, taxes, and appreciation. But EBITDA is basically, in theory, mimics your cash flow that's generating, right? So they want to give you a multiple of your cash flow that's coming out. And so by having a private equity firm that got our numbers looking really good, our cash flow looked really good. So, you know, it wasn't a, I don't want to say I planned it that way, but it, I think the stars kind of aligned that when you have the investors, we were in the right position at that time so that when Comcast did come, um, the offer made a lot of sense. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point about making sure there's a good alignment between what you want to achieve and what your investors want to achieve. Uh, so building on that a little bit, uh, can you tell us uh, about, as, as you looked at taking capital in, uh, how did you think about the amount of other involvement you wanted from your investors? Did you want to give them a board seat? Did you want to have them, you know, what type of level? How did you think about that as you sorted through selecting an investor? So a lot of times that's kind of part of the deal that's thrown on you. Um, you know, everyone's first reaction is, I got it. I just need, you know, I want your money a lot of times. Sometimes you're looking for strategic advice on things like that. And uh, I think there's a lot of firms that can do that and bring a lot of value. Um, you know, when we did the deal with our private equity firm, um, it, there was some value they brought in financial, you know, uh, strength there. But, you know, a lot of it really was uh, a control issue, right? And so they bought initially 60% of the company. They had control. They needed to have control, even though there was no preference. Um, they needed to have the ability to do things and get it done. And so the, the compromise on that was that they had uh, two board seats. Um, we had two board seats. I'm sorry, I had one board seat, and then I had a neutral board seat that came in. And so, you know, you obviously, obviously want to have an odd number of people. I'm sorry, they had three. I'm doing my math wrong, right? So they had three. We had a neutral, and I was one. So in theory, um, a lot of things that were critical. So if you wanted to sell your stock, if I wanted to give myself a raise, any of those key things that they were nervous about, I couldn't do that unless I got a second vote. And it either had to come from my private equity firm or it had to come from that neutral board seat. And so that was a really good, healthy compromise. You just got to make sure that person is truly neutral. The person we had was, he, he was actually an executive from Disney um, who came through a search, uh, Randy Garfield, terrific guy. Um, and so for that, it worked out really well you know, having that, but it, but it is hard. And then obviously when with, with Comcast, now I'm an employee, I have no ownership anymore. So 
it's kind of changed from there. Can you kind of walk us through a little bit of this deal in Comcast? How long did it take? Were there other, first of all, before Comcast, I'm, I'm wondering, were there other offers that you passed on? How did you make those kind of decisions? But then in terms of the Comcast deal, you know, when did that, you know, who approached whom? Uh, you know, just walk, walk us through some of the details on that. So, you know, again, I, I love the expression, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Right, so you know, I've worked very hard over the years, and sometimes luck does follow that. And so, hospitality Wi-Fi became an industry that um, private equity VC money was following aggressively. And so, the fact that we installed all the other stuff was was nice; it helped our numbers. But it was hospitality Wi-Fi. And so, what happened is you had a lot of private equity firms that started doing acquisitions. Um, and going down that path. So we started getting a lot of offers. And again, that's where you start figuring out what's the goal of the private equity. Um, a couple of firms, and in fact, we had a lot of these offers where you get, um, I would say a kid, I'm 53 years old, right? But someone who graduated from uh, business school, right? Wharton or Chicago or some one of these good schools that finds money backing and they want to go buy a company and run that company, right? So you start figuring those out. I'm like, okay, I don't want to do that. I want to be the guy staying on board, right? So. Those kind of go away, um, but when you start getting other offers, it's really just one of those trying to ask the right questions. You know, I kind of said, like, what, what's in the best alignment with what you're looking to do? And then even after we did the deal with, with uh, GPB, you know, I would still be getting offers probably one or two a week. I mean, that's how much we were getting offers. So, you know, you, you, you filter through it, you look at it, and then I would send them to the private equity firm to kind of let them navigate it, you know, again, their plan was to have an exit at some point, although I didn't know when that was. Um, but because there was no preference, I knew if and when there was an, an exit, we'd all be aligned and that the valuation would have to make sense. They would need my vote to get it there. So um, I think we were in good shape. And then really, you know, when you, when you think about it, right, there's, there's financial buyers that usually will pay a lower value than a strategic buyer. So a Comcast is a strategic buyer or a Verizon or someone like that that says, you know, we're, we're a company, we're in this um, these markets strategically we want to be able to go into Wi-Fi and so by them it made a lot of sense right there are 130 you said billions and billions right there a fortune 30 company you know they have 4,500 sales reps around the country They're the largest cable operator in the country so 43 percent of America gets its internet from Comcast right so so what else can they sell them and so you know you think about it where you know we were approaching 40 million dollars in sales you know, they're not looking for $40 million from out of us, right? That's not, that doesn't move the needle for them. But I think you called it a rounding error on the Christmas party. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, it's, you know, when you think about it, right? So I, I work for an $8 billion division of a $120 billion company, right? And so Comcast business is aggressively growing 20, 30% every, which is amazing that you're doing that, right? So how do they continue to grow? Wi-Fi is strategically what they're looking to do. And so, um, again, as luck would have it, right? They were down the path with another one of my competitors that was twice my size, um, that had done a lot of private equity deals. And, you know, both sides tell you different reasons why it fell apart, but the bottom line is it did. And so Comcast was committed to buying a company. And um, so when they reached out to me, ironically, the company that they were hoping to buy also reached out to me and they wanted to buy us and bring us in and they wanted me to run the combined company. So I didn't know any of that, but when they... a really they, good self-esteem booster. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but, but really what happened is, right, the guys that 
bailed on the deal or fell through, all of a sudden they didn't want to lose to the guys that were there. And, you know, so what, what happened is we had these two offers that came in. One is the private equity guys actually gave me, threw a number out at me, knowing our numbers and roughly where we're at. Um, and it was a very nice offer. And so I went back to my board and I said, I got this nice offer here. Comcast has not thrown us a number, but we believe they're a strategic buyer. They could get a better offer. So the board basically said, why don't you go back to Comcast? Why don't you uh, give them a deadline of 10 days? And basically, if they get an offer to you in 10 days, if it makes sense, we'll pursue it. Otherwise, we'll go down the other path. And so in 10 days, um, they did make an offer. Um, it was one of those exploding contracts, right? I had 24 hours to sign it. So the offer was on for 24 hours. We took a quick vote. The numbers made a lot of sense. We signed what kind it. What numbers were they? Sorry, Rick. Rick's asking me that question like five different ways, but it ain't happening. How many commas, as Tony would say? <laughs> so, um, so we were able to do that. And then, you know, the, the private equity firm, on the other hand, when it, when it came down, said, you know, we don't want to lose momentum with the other offer. And so they said to Comcast, we'll sign it, but you have 60 days to close with us. And so really from beginning to end, it took 70 days, which is wow. incredible when you think about a company that size getting a deal done uh, there. So we worked through, you know, around the clock getting that deal done. But, it, you know, on the clock, we did get it actually done um, on that date. And so now... My, my new title is uh, um, I'm the VP uh, General Manager, right, which means I run a company within Comcast, um, Premise Wireless Solutions. So I report directly to Bill Stemper, who's the president of Comcast Business, and we are the wireless center for excellence for all of Comcast nationwide. And so anything that has four or more access points that they're involved with um, throughout the country now is going to come through the Center for Excellence, which is based here in the Capital Region. And so, you know, super exciting to me, right? You know, it's, it's, it's nice to get a check, right? And don't get me wrong, it's nice to have that. But, you know, as, as you go through deals, um, you really do start looking at, you know, what's your legacy, right? Where do you want to be? What do you want to be remembered for? And, and to me, I didn't, going down the deal with the private equity firm would have meant that we would have closed down our help desk would have meant a lot of layoffs, would have meant that I would have moved to Manchester. And, and frankly, I, I wasn't excited at that. I, I was trying to be um, open-minded with my board, but, you know, it didn't check any of the boxes I wanted. And so I'm, I'm super excited that Comcast has chosen to grow in the capital region. And actually, when you dig in, they've done that in other markets like this. And uh, there was a market in Ohio that did an acquisition there. And, and those companies that, you know, again, were our size have, have grown tenfold, right? So we're, we're super excited in that. We, we really expect, and I'll give a plug out for my buddy Zach in the back, who's negotiating a lease for us, right, to expand over in, uh, in, in Troy right now. Um, you know, we have 20,000 square feet. We're grabbing another 12,000 square feet. We're extending our lease there. And so we're super excited in that we're going to be expanding in the region. We're going to be hiring. We're going to be bringing in talent outside the area for the positions that we can't get. Um, and we're going to be hopefully reaching out to the schools, you know, which is why I'm excited to, you know, to speak here. And I'm glad that a lot of students are here. Um, it's cool. The region is growing. We're not the only one, right? Vers I mean, you guys have some, you know, great story what's going on in, in Schenectady. Um, there's a lot of companies growing. Troy, Schenectady, Albany. Um, it, it really is amazing. You know, I still have my, my Tech Valley license plates that says oh. Wi-Fi 1 for anyone who sees my yeah. pickup truck. Wow. But, you know, it's amazing to think where the region has come, right, that we're, we're able to... Uh, talk about all these success stories, of which I'm just one of many in the region. And so um, super excited to, you know, that I'm able to be, you know, part of that. Awesome. So, Brian, as, as you reflect back on your journey at, at uh, 
deep blue communications. Um, what were some of the key decisions or strategic decisions you guys made that positioned you for this Comcast deal? So, you know, again, just having a clear conversation, I think, to understand what's our exit strategy, right? Um, we were, the private equity guys really did position us well for that. You know, I, I again, butted heads with my, my ownership group, right? You know, um, it was a very hard conversation when uh, we do a sales kickoff every year in a different market. And I remember being um, in New Orleans, I remember calling my wife about that. I was like, fired up all, all angry, but basically I was hoping to get my budget approved. And they were like, we don't think you're making money here. We don't think you're making money here. And I was like, hey, so what do you want? And they basically said, I need you to cut out $800,000 in costs, which, you know, for a $30 million company, just cut out $800,000 in costs, a lot of money. And so um, I was in New Orleans, so I did go out of a bar and figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't mowing my lawn that time. So, um, but, you know, we did, uh, we did figure it out. And, and ultimately, it, they were right, right, in the sense that um, the reason you have a business, and if you take in investors, is usually to make a profit, right? There, you can have other missions that are associated. I'm a big believer in, you know, core values and doing that. But at the end of the day, especially if you take in other investments, it's about profitability. It's about an exit. It's about being able to do that. So I, I think in a lot of ways they, they forced my hand to do that. And I think, uh, you, know, I would, you know, had I had the hindsight to do it myself, it would have been great. But um, they really did get us in a good position to do that. When, when GPB came in, you know, again, I was in a good position because we had just picked up Hilton. And so we were installing about eight, eight to ten Hilton hotels a week. And so we were cranking out Hilton hotels around the country. So no surprise, our numbers looked really good at the time. But, um, you know, sales cures all evils, right? So we were, we were fat and lazy and, and cranking on there. But I think GPB brought a lot of discipline to get us where we needed to be so that we could be financially responsible and ready to take the next step. So it's, it sounds like th that private equity investor helped really understood what you needed to look like to be attractive to a Comcast. So they helped position you for that. Unquestionable, right? So now we had audited financials, which we never had before, right? We were, we were able to close in 70 days, right? That was mutually beneficial for both. You don't, that doesn't happen unless your financials are pristine, accurate, right, ready to go. The numbers that you represented match. Because what, what happens, right, is you get a letter of intent from a company that says, I'm going to buy you for this. But really, it's not, it's not binding, right? Anyone can get out of it at any time based on really any reason there. But it's, it's a gentleman's agreement to say, you know, we're going to do, get things done. But you don't want to give them an excuse to question what happened. And really, as they start doing their due diligence and, and going down that path, every checkbox, every audit, everything they went through was, um, was great. Even, even inventory, right? They go to inventory counts. You know, I think we were like 99.2% accuracy, which it was better than their warehouses, right? So I, I think that just gave credibility along the way. You know, and it's almost like, you know, my mom, um, she has a house in the Berkshires, by the way, if anyone wants to buy. But uh, <laughs> so she had a buyer for her house and, you know, she was she got that original contract. Right. And she was super excited and celebrating. And I'm like, well, like that. You just got a contract. Right. It's you still got a long way to go. Right. They're going to come in. They're going to probe through your house. Right. They're going to look in places you didn't think they're going to go through. And they really can get out for not a lot of reasons, right? If they can have someone come in and say, engineering-wise, there's a problem. So if you've gone through that process in your house, it's not that different than your business. You gotta recognize the first step is getting that letter of intent. The harder step is getting to the finish line, 
right, and making sure that it's there. And, and if you misrepresent what's going to happen, you know, any reasonably good um, audit is going to discover that, and you're probably going to lose credibility, and the deal's probably going to fall through. Yeah, so when, when these boxes get checked, uh, and they're nice and clean, the audit's clean, et cetera, the deal sort of gains momentum. Right, it just keeps going faster and faster and faster because the acquirer gets more comfortable with you. Yeah, as unless red the, flags. I'm yeah, when a red flag pops up, then they go, "Whoa, we got to go look even deeper." That's exactly right. So, right. so they they do preliminary, right? They look at everything. Certain things they had to dive very deep, but when everything's coming back, if you get that occasional miss, they're not thinking there's a bigger problem, right? They kind of help you to. Are they to like solve in the problem. office? Are you watching them do this, or so there's hovering over? <laughs> there? <laughs> There's cameras, right? What does that look like? Seriously. Well, it's it's audited, right? I mean, it's not pleasant. There is time that they come in, but you know, a lot of it is a uh, a Dropbox, right, with a lot of different folders and checklists, and you're going through every every day, and there's a checklist there that you're they're saying this one's good, this one's not. You need to go through and update those. So literally every single day, we're going through the checklist. Is this good? Is this not good? And then what happens is you get different groups within Comcast that comes through it and they don't know what's been approved and they ask for the same freaking piece of paper over and over, right? And so your first reaction is, don't you guys have it? And right. yes, they do, but if you don't help them through that, like, it's just going to delay it, right? So every day, we're going back in, we're taking the same contract, sending it out to a different group within Comcast to make sure it's there. It's, it's hard, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a marathon, right, for that 60 days. I can't imagine doing it for a longer period of time to get you there. So I'm going to ask one question, and then we're going to open it up. So if you have a question, be ready, because this is going to be your moment. So one of the things I really appreciated, we talked a couple days ago, was the idea that, number one, you think the goal is to make this a $1 billion unit here. Is that correct? So I, I'll rephrase okay. that as to say we, our goal is to have a billion-dollar impact, impact on Comcast business, right? Okay. And so what, what that means is that, um, like right now, we have a very large uh, deal that we run, that came through uh, the, uh, the central region, where, whereby they had 120 locations where they wanted SD-WAN, they wanted um, internet, they wanted a managed firewall, and they wanted Wi-Fi, right? And so they had three of those buckets were the fourth piece, so by having all four of those, they were able to get the deal, right? So most of the profits on that deal was not us, but for us, it was a big deal. It's a couple of million dollars just on our end, but for them, it's a much bigger deal, right? So, so that's how we can have a billion-dollar impact is to have a full suite of products that, again, checks off the boxes for their buyers. But what's great is that they, you know, we've had some um, acquisitions in the capital region where after the acquisition, the, kind of, the company kind of evaporates from the Tech Valley landscape. And what I think is exciting about um, the Deep Blue uh, deal is that you want to grow here. And, but my question to you is about culture. And... It hasn't, you know, people who've been with you for a long time, who kind of liked Deep Blue when you guys were a gritty, small company, and now all of a sudden you're owned by the business unit alone that you're owned by is like a $10 billion unit, I think. Or yeah, yeah. So, Close. Um, yeah. so how do you merge culture? Did some people say, you know, I'm, thank you, it's been a fun ride, I'm leaving. Um, just give me a sense of how you build that. It's kind of a new culture now that you have to fit into. It, it, it is, right? So you, you want to keep what made you strong. And, um, you know, core values is a way to do that. And, and in a lot of ways, if you were to look at Comcast core values, other than us being Giant and Jet fans and they're Eagles fans, um, <laughs> you know, once you get past that, um, they're, they're actually very similar in a lot of ways, even though, again, my Jets lost to their Eagles. Um, I hate the Eagles. So we all do, right? Yeah. So, 
But 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 all kidding aside, right? It it does change the um, the outlook, right? And so um, you know we we have lost some people, um, some people that are new to us, some people that have been around a long time. You know, um, there's opportunities now, and you know one of our core values has always been to embrace change, right? And and now it's more than ever that it's time to embrace change, and. I think there's a lot of people that um, looked at when you have a small business and you're all hunkering down and you're driving things, right? It's this close-knit family that you're there. And um, we're no longer a small family anymore, right? So I think what, what happens, and, you know, we recently had a town hall um, internally with our employees to talk about them. And, you know, I was trying to think of, you know, an analogy that might, you know, connect with them. And so, you know, as a, a union college alumni, you know, I, I equated to, you know, when I went there, they were a Division II hockey school, and, and bad at that, by the way. So um, they, and when you're a bad Division II hockey school, you don't really recruit a lot of good hockey players, right? So how do you, how do you grow? How do you get past that, right? So, you know, eventually you get good coaches, eventually you get a couple of good players that really make a difference. And so when, when Union, six years ago, um, whatever it was, yeah, uh, actually eight years ago, went to the Frozen Four, it, like, got national attention, right? This school of 2,200 people that just went into the Frozen Four. People are like, who the heck is this, right? So, so guess what happens? All of a sudden, NHL teams start recruiting the guys that got them to the front, you know, to the Frozen Like, who are these guys, right? So a lot of talent disappears because you get national attention out there, right? And so when you look at us, that's what's happening, right? We're a small regional company that's now owned by this company. It's getting a lot of press nationally. And so companies that are nationally based, that are actually have a presence here, started poaching our employees, which made a lot of sense, right? They're like, how do we get a piece of that? How do we get that frozen for, right? But, but the next part, right, and what I said to my team is, you know, the next year we recruited a lot of really good people and, and union recruited a lot of good people. They still didn't go back to the Frozen Four, right? The next year, again, more people. They got a little closer, didn't get it. But three years later, not only did they get to the Frozen Four, but they won the national championship, right? And so, you know, to me, you know, the thing is, like, you know, your, your son's a perfect example, right? So Zach's been in our help desk. We're a big believer in promoting from within. The people that embrace that and they see that and say, I want to go, I want to be the national champion, I want to stick around and do that, to me, I, I think that's a good career move. Um, but I think when some people see all of a sudden I can go here for $5 more an hour today, I, I think you're selling your education and your career short, but it, it gets you a short-term gain, right? So, so yes, we've lost some of those employees now, and, and so we're, we're hiring. And, and the good thing is, again, because of who we are now, we're able to hire and attract people from outside the area. So I think we're getting a lot of good people. Um, so I, I would say... You know, collectively, you know, again, we're 120, 130 people right now. We lost about 20 people, which, which is a lot. But in the scheme of things, it's not bat-breaking. Um, the people we're getting are great, and we're excited to get our culture back and, and recognize that, you know, we, we can't apologize for being a Comcast business company, right? That's who we are. That's who we are now. And I don't want to go out there and be like, well, you know, we're still this family because we can be close, but at the end of the day, we are a Comcast business company. And, and if you embrace that, think about that, right? I, I report to the president of Comcast Business, and I live in Albany, New York, right? Where else can you do that? There's not a lot of companies here that can say you work for, as an executive, as a Fortune 50 company, 
and, and live in this great, awesome region. Right? Actually, he lives in Miskayuna, Schenectady County. <laughs> <laughs> As I do, and love it there. So, so thank you. All right, I'm sorry. I, Rayla hates it when I get so regional, but, or so, like, whatever. Yes. Lauren, oh, you want to take the microphone? Sure, yeah. All right, Lauren, bring it on. Oh, not from you, but. Uh, so, uh, Lauren Groff, Groff Networks, uh, I mean, as, as you know, Brian, you know, I always praise, you know, sing your praises, and obviously you, you have ours as well, and, and some referrals, which I thank you for, but when I, before I started out, I sat down and asked you, hey, what's this entrepreneurial thing, and he, he warned me, it's a gut wrench, any advice for someone who even dreaming of, you know, a $10 million company, uh, you know, because, you yeah, know, the big M&A, you know, some of the advice you have, boards, and all that kind of stuff, but just some advice even that you've learned in the past 10, 15 years that would also apply to the small. It, it's yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, if you want to be a $10 million company, you, you have to start acting like a $10 million company today, right? You got to put the team in place to be that. You got to start thinking in terms of that and you got to make, vocalize it to your team. And you might have to change some of the people that you think are not going to be there when you're a $10 million company, but um, you can't do it backwards, right? You got to start thinking of yourself as a much bigger company and have that vision out there and, and then figure out what's, what's the hurdles to get to you. What's your time frame to get there? Is, is there a reason why you got to be expeditious to get there? Is there a competing person that's chipping away at there? If you don't get there in this time, you're going to lose? Or can you be patient and thoughtful, right? And then if you can be, you know, making sure that every year you're putting the numbers out there to say, we're going to get there, right? So we were on the Inc.'s fastest growing company. Um, this was our eighth year in a row. So every year we grew at least 30% for the last 10 years. Right? And that was thoughtful. Every year we would have a sales kickoff that we would say, I know this is what you did last year. This is what we're expecting to do you know, next year. Right? So uh, Mike Bentley you know, sitting back there. I remember when, uh, when Mike was you know, running our sales team, you know, we had, Mike came to me and was like, you know, this, how are we going to convince everyone to do this? And so Mike called it Mission Possible because right? people were freaked. Like, how are we going to grow this number when we just had our best year? Right? But guess what? We blew through that number because we put it on the board. We said we're going to do that. And so you got to just do that. And then over time, right, your, your team does change as you get there. And, and you can't apologize for that. Right? You want the people that understand where you're going. And if you put it out there, no, no different than personal finances. Right? You'll never get there if you don't put it out there and say, this is where I want to be, and you're tracking it. Otherwise, you're going to look back three years and be like, nothing happened. Thanks. Any other questions over here? So when Comcast came in, I would assume there was an opportunity for you to just take the check and run. What, think about it. Tell us about that conversation in your head. So, uh, you know, in, in reality, I was kind of part of the sale, okay. and and um, which was great. That because because again, that's I um, I'm not sure I was ready to retire. I mean, I I I, I could, you know, uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I think at some point I want to get more involved, and I'm, I'm starting to join some more local boards here. Um, but it was you nice to join the virtual fun network here at the Biz Lab, too. <laughs> but, you know, it's nice to be asked to the dance, you know, to, to do that. And, and that was part of the reason that, you know, I was excited to do that, is that, um, again, it, it's a strategic buyer, right? And so strategically, just to give you an example, um, once a year Comcast business has an analyst conference, and so they had 50 analysts fly into Philly, and we're at the Four Seasons Hotel, and Wi-Fi is such a strategic initiative to them that of the five speakers that they had on stage, I was one of the five, right? Talking about, again, not that we're a $40 million company, but how Wi-Fi is going to change the presence, and so to me, that was really cool that I was able to give them that opportunity, 
Um, I, I think if they didn't want me, truthfully, I think the offer probably would have been a lot less. It would have been a lot different offer um, because they want the culture. They want everything that goes with it. And so in, in, in that instance, I, I didn't really have a choice, right? I was part of the deal. And, and I'm glad because I, they see I'm still fired up about the business and I, I want to be involved in the business. Awesome. Last question. So the question is basically, how did Brian see the future so well? <laughs> so I, I, I promise not to cry, you know, but there's, there was a, it was a long road to get there, right? And so a lot of it is when I got into the Wi-Fi space, you know, for example, I was going to do some downtowns. So downtown Schenectady, downtown Albany were actually part of my business plan. Um, those, those disappeared with other companies doing it, taking funding that, in my opinion, was things that we were looking at. Um, and so, you know, you can... And I spent a lot of time working on those projects, thinking that was the vision. And the irony of it is because these companies um, aggressively went after that and did that, I basically said, I, I got to go outside of the capital region, right? I love that I can grow a business here and I can hire people here, but I got to figure out how to go national. And because of that, again, call it luck, right? We decided that what can I do nationally? You can't really do downtowns. You can't do apartment complexes, but hotels are something you can scale very easily because you have one property where people, truthfully, if they're having a problem, they're gone the next day, right? So it's easier to support them on there. And so a lot of it was trying to find where, where does it fit in? And then again, you know, um, Apple came out with the iPad and then people answered the question, why do people need Wi-Fi and a hotel and all that stuff, right? So when, when you got a device that no longer had an Ethernet jack, all of a sudden it became clear. And so we went from three employees to 25 employees that year. Awesome. We are out of time. Give it up for Brian Epstein. Bela, that was a great interview. And gosh, lots of great material about being acquired. What are the key takeaways from the acquisition process? Well, I think uh, some of the key takeaways that I, I, I think about uh, that he brought up is uh, one thing that I've seen happen numerous times. Uh, once you're acquired... You are now a part of a different organization, and there's going to be a period of adjustment. In particular, uh, if, a, if a whale like Comcast swallows a smaller fish uh, like Deep Blue Communications, the folks at Deep Blue Communications are going to see a lot, a lot of changes. Processes are going to change. Uh, the way things get done are going to change. The culture is going to change, etc. And um, I think one of Brian's big challenges is uh, communicating that to the folks at Deep Blue Communication and helping them to accept that, not just to accept it, uh, but to embrace it and to say, okay, this is going to be our new life. And, you know, oftentimes when there's a merger or acquisition, uh, you'll see some people in an organization depart, uh, you know, in two, three, four, six months or so. And that's because the new culture uh, doesn't work for them. Um, and that's a fine. That's normal. Uh, and it's to be expected. 
Um, but it's, uh, I think the change in culture is a, a really big thing that oftentimes uh, people miss. And oftentimes the uh, acquiring company or the, the, you know, the, the, the larger company um, sort of is not as sensitive to those things as maybe they should be or can be. Uh, so those were two things that, that I thought that Brian talked about a little bit. Uh, he clearly embraced the change and he embraced this new uh, uh, opportunity to work for Comcast in a different environment. And, he, and I think he thinks about it very much as a new learning opportunity for himself. Um, and I think he's, he's trying to make sure that the, the folks that he's worked with for a long time and has had a lot of long personal relationships with over the years at Deep Blue uh, can, can uh, embrace it as well. Yeah, I agree, Bela. It's you know, there's a trade-offs involved because you lose that autonomy, absolutely, but you gain access to resources, you gain market reach, right? You gain access to all kinds of new potential customers. Uh, sometimes you diversify your product line at the same time. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of good reasons to do it, but absolutely. And you know, if you know anything about Comcast, you know it's a it's a big company. Um, it's got somewhat of a mixed reputation among some of its customer segments, um, but it's grown really fast and it's really big. And uh, so that can take you a lot of places. Um, so I think it's an interesting challenge. And yeah, Brian do- dives in head first and he's understands the, the trade-offs and he uh, he's, it sounds to me like he's really made an effort to keep the culture unique and special. It changes, uh, but still keep it an innovative, agile, um, good place to work. Uh, and I think that's the that's the secret sauce. You know, it's like you, you you spend the last couple of seasons wearing a bathing suit you like. You know, you got to pick it out. You got to see if it looks good on you. And then all of a sudden somebody says, nope, you got to wear this bathing suit. And sometimes people say, oh, I don't like the color. That's a little tight on me. The cut isn't my flattering, right? And you either got to get used to it or, or you go. And I think that when you make an acquisition, you factor in that you're not going to keep 100% of the human capital. But you hope that you keep the right people and the core people and you can kind of fill in the rest of the way. So it's interesting. You know, and he bought, he bought. Um, his original company, right? There was an acquisition there in the fir- in the first place. Uh, so I think that that's kind of an interesting thing because he said, right, that um, that early on the um, that uh, oh shoot, now my brain it was out in California, I think, right? It was Deep Blue originally, and his company on the East B- Coast bought, bought the company on the West Coast. That's right. So. Yep. He's been through this on the other side, which is kind of interesting. And he kept that mentality, right? If you want to be a $10 million company, you got to act like it, right? Exactly. So that was fascinating. Yeah. I think the other interesting thing is that uh, Comcast uh, basically uh, has Deep Blue as a uh, division. And Brian Mm -hmm. is the person running that organization. So sometimes when there's an acquisition uh, there's what I would call a total integration of the of the acquired company, and uh, uh, within six to nine months, you can't even see that it existed anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. And here, they sort of left it as a division, um, and that so that sort of helps Brian. I think number one, it gives him some organization to run, it gives him some ownership, and it gives him an ability to put his stamp uh, on the on the folks uh, his 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 existing stamp on this division within Comcast and keep some of that culture that he had built up in deep blue. Uh, so that's sort of a, a, sort of a nice way of doing it. I think from Comcast's part. 
Yeah, well, and Comcast is trying to leverage some of what they bought, right? Customer service, technical excellence, right? All these things um, that that Deep Blue can help with. And if you disperse the resource throughout the big organization, then that loses its potency, right? So it's kind of in, in a lot of ways Comcast's best interest to keep this business unit whole and keep Brian and keep most of his team and then use this as a, what he called the center of excellence, right, to try to spread the best practices that he developed in his company over to the parent company. So it's a learning model and it's a two-way street and you have to have a structure in place to, to try to get the best um, of the resource that you're buying if you're looking at this from, from Comcast's uh, point of view. Yep. A good point, Mike. And I think the other interesting thing that uh, Brian talked about is that uh, you know before he sort of used to report to a board of directors when he was running Deep Blue Communications and that was sort of the folks that he reported to uh, and now he reports to a uh, the president of Comcast, uh, and he you know travels to I think it's Philadelphia. He said is is where their headquarters are, and he goes down there on occasion. And he has he has a different boss now, uh, but he still has uh, sort of that uh, uh, independence because he has this division that he runs, and uh, he clearly. Uh, I thought, you know, sitting there next to him and, and asking him these questions and seeing the expression on his face, which, of course, you don't get in the podcast, uh, he clearly uh, was vibrating lots of positive energy about this new adventure. And I think it's one of the characteristics of, a, of an entrepreneur is they embrace these uh, new opportunities to learn, to grow, uh, and uh, to explore new things and, and uh I think Brian is is a, a great example of that. Yeah, it's a two-way street, right? So the the acquiring company, in this case Comcast, they've got to be willing to learn and to apply best practices and to to do things that in a customized way that works for this relationship, right? And Brian, as the leader of the acquired company, needs to show this open-mindedness and this learning attitude. And really, for an acquisition to work, um, both sides really have to to kind of adopt an open and learning stance uh, to if you want to take advantage of, you know, this is a cheesy word, but the synergies, right, between um, the acquired company and the acquiring company. Because the, all the data that I've seen in a lot of cases is 50% or more of the acquisitions that are made do not work well financially for the acquiring company. So that means that they either overpaid or what they thought they were buying um, wasn't really a good, there wasn't much to it, right? Or like in the case we were kind of inferring to before, a bunch of the human capital leaves or um, the customers go with uh, one of the founders who might leave. So, you know, really to make it work is you have to value the business the right way and understand uh, where the value is. And then you have to find a way to share those, the, 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 or exchange the value, right? What is the acquired company getting out of it, right? Um, Blue Ocean, what are they, or Deep, uh, Deep Blue, what are they getting out of it? And what's Comcast getting out of it? And are you making sure that there's kind of doors open for that to happen? And then the last thing is you got to make sure those key people stay with their network, right? With their suppliers, with their customers. So that's kind of, I think, the, the dance that has to be danced um, if you want a, a acquisition to be good, both for the Comcast in this and the Deep Blue in this, right? For both sides of the, of the coin. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, you bring up a good point here, Mike. This is really an opportunity uh, for both organizations to learn from each other and to sort of uh, see the things that the other organization does in a different way, and then understanding 
is that different way better for customers, better for employees, uh, a better way to develop technology, a better way to, de- to deliver technology or products or services? And I think that's a place where many of these mergers fall down, where they, they focus on, on one specific thing uh, that they thought was the main reason they acquired that company. But oftentimes, um, that's a, it's not one specific thing. That one specific thing shines because of all these other things that support it, i.e. the people, the culture, um, their inner interactions with customers, etc., and I think that's a place where where both folks can learn from. The smaller company can learn from how the larger company scales and does things and grows uh, and drives development, um, and the larger company can also learn as well. Yeah, and it's a nice um, dovetailing story with the role of the entrepreneur, right? We know that some founders have to leave the business when it grows to a certain size because they can't manage the business. They have the initial idea and they're great in the startup phase, but once it gets to be a $10 million company and larger, somebody else has to take over. But in this case, um, you know, Brian was an effective manager who both grew the company and now has been able to make the transition into the corporate framework. And that's not always common, right? I mean, I, I think um, that it takes a skill set, right, where you can do both um, uh, founding and managing um, a, a medium-sized organization, and, and not everybody can do that. So it's a neat story of a serial entrepreneur, right, who, who kind of made it, made it work, and then has been able to, trans, uh, to translate or, or to transition into this new role and within the structure of a, a big, you know, a, a great big giant company. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Anything else we want to cover here, Mike? No, I think, I think we can wrap it up. What do you think? I agree. Let's uh, let's all right, let's, let's wrap it up and uh, all right. take it from there. I will. Okay. Well, audience, thanks. We're really happy that you joined us in our podcasting adventure this week, and we hope you found the last uh, forty-five minutes or so interesting and thought-provoking. As usual, we have a couple of small requests. First, if you have questions about what we discussed today, suggestions about future topics or potential guests, uh, we really do like to hear from you. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And second, if you like what you're doing, uh, please hit subscribe or like uh, on your podcast app, uh, or you could even be radical and consider writing us a short review. And of course, if you know others that might find us uh, interesting, please share us with them. Yeah. So thanks for spending time with us. We really appreciate you uh, uh, doing that. And we look forward to having you join us for our next episode. So signing off from upstate New York. Hey, see you next week, Mike. Sounds great, Bela. That's it from over here on this side of the Atlantic in Münster, Germany. Have a great week, everybody. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.